This is the Wavemaker Conversations podcast. I'm Michael Shoulder. This past week, I had the honor of sitting down with the former First Lady of the United States, Rosalind Carter. Until I prepared for this interview, I was not fully aware of what an active and high-impact role Rosalind Carter played during the Carter presidency, particularly on women's rights and mental health. As you're about to hear, Mrs. Carter, at the age of 87, remains fully engaged on the issues that have driven her for so many years. This conversation is part of the National Women's Hall of Fame Oral History Project, made possible through a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Mrs. Carter, thank you for joining us uh, for the National Women's Hall of Fame Oral History Project. You have been traveling a lot. In fact, recently we had an interview scheduled and you came down with a little bug in your travels. Where are you going and what are you discovering these days? I travel all over the world with my husband. We have programs in 70-something countries. I haven't been to all of them. And then we do other things. For instance, a couple of weekends ago, we went to Seattle for the change of command of the USS Jimmy Carter. That was really exciting. Had to walk down a long way um, with everybody looking at me, which was a little bit frightening, but the Navy music playing, it was nostalgic for me. It was was really wonderful. And um, so that was one trip. And then um, after that, when we got home, we went on an annual fishing trip to Pennsylvania where um, we started fishing. I learned to fly fish when Jimmy was present. We would go over there. Actually, we would go to Camp David and get out of the helicopter, go change clothes. Press would go back to town. We'd get back in the helicopter, fly over to this farm. Um, it was a dairy farm. And um, land in the pasture and a beautiful trout stream. And the family had five children, and the oldest was a daughter, Amy's age. It was perfect. And a cornfield way out in the country. We went over and over, and the press never found out about it. And we didn't particularly um, hide from them. We just we went out to eat with our friends. And, and we've gone back every year except one since we left the White House. We've grown to know their family. They know our family. And, We watched them grow up together and so forth. Well, let me ask you, you mentioned a a little nostalgic memory. So there are so many places where we can start your narrative. But but because this is the National Women's Hall of Fame, uh, there was something that you participated in early in the Carter administration. And it was 1977. It was the National Women's Conference, the first federally funded National Women's Conference in American history, four days in November. And a torch was carried from Seneca Falls to Houston and delivered to you on stage. How did you come to be there, and what are your memories of that? Well, it was the first year Jimmy was president. And um, it was so exciting to me because I had worked with the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, In in Georgia, there was no way it was going to be ratified. Um, And I got so much criticism for it. I had been to the Capitol and with my big support ERA button on with all of these people who were protesting against it. So I was excited about, in the first place, I was excited to be in the White House in that position so that I could um, go to that conference, which I never dreamed I would be able to do. Uh, I never dreamed I might be able to do something in the whole country 
that I really cared about. And so it was absolutely thrilling to me. And Lady Bird Johnson and Betty Ford were there. And um, the idea came during the Ford administration, which I thought was really wonderful. Um, because, and I'm sure Betty Ford had some input into that because she was so, I admired her for her stand on um, equal rights for women. And um, to have the torch delivered to me, or to all three of us actually, was so exciting. I just had this great feeling that now, look what can happen. 20,000 people were there, 20,000 women. Some were protesting, but that was just a little minority. I don't think people realize now how controversial that issue was back then. And uh, I know I would come home and people would say, in my church, our friends, you mean you want to go to the bathroom with a man? <laughs> I said, I do it on the airplane all the time. <laughs> but, but anyway, it was very controversial. But it, um, and it was thrilling. And what was your role, and how did you come to be either invited or did you ask to go? Jimmy and I have always been, Jimmy too, really interested in women's rights. And um, after Jimmy was elected president, even before inauguration, we started putting together a list of women that would be qualified for any position in the government. And then when Jimmy was, took office, he appointed an assistant to the president for women. And so as soon as we got to the White House, I began working with Sarah Whittington, was her name, wonderful woman. And we, we did have this committee. I had already worked on it some, but we got it together. We had, when Jimmy was president, at least two qualified women for every appointment he made. He made more appointments for women than all other presidents before him combined. How did that idea come about to have two qualified women for well, every Well, at least one? more than one, and, and sometimes we had more than two. But we wanted to be sure we had one that would be, that if one didn't, didn't work out, it would have others there. And so, as soon as I got involved with those women, I knew about the uh, National uh, Women's Conference. And we started planning for it and working toward it. And just out of curiosity, how many, because it's a chapter in history that I wasn't really aware of. The National Women's Hall of Fame made me aware of it. How many days did you spend there? And very importantly for me, when you returned from Houston mm -hmm. to the White House, did you discuss what transpired there with the president? Of course. What did, can, can you tell us what you spoke about? Well, I don't know exactly, of course, but I imagine I told him how exciting it was. And, and as, long as, as far as how long I was there, I went the night before and, and um, went to a fundraiser for, for people working on the Equal Rights Amendment, women from all over the country working on the Equal Rights Amendment. And then I went to the, the um, big meeting the next morning and accepted the torch. And, um, but, and then I left. And I had worked, one of the women that was in that group was my daughter-in-law because she was a real feminist. Back there you didn't call her feminist, that was not a nice word. <laughs> but she was a real feminist and I think my interest in women came from two daughters-in-law who were both young and supported the Equal Rights Amendment. But I left this one who then when we got to the White House was, was named to that committee so that she knew everything that I thought and could represent me in all of the meetings.
So just to follow up on the Equal Rights Amendment, that's fascinating to me because as we read history, you know, so often people get involved in legislation because of a personal connection. Now, you were a woman to start with, but it was the daughter-in-laws that really sensitized you to the Equal Rights Amendment. I'm fascinated with that. Two of our sons were married before Jimmy came, became president. And there was a little red barn, we called it, a building on the grounds at the governor's mansion. So they lived with, right there with us and so that we would talk about the issues all the time and what we could do. And, I, and that obviously is how I became so interested in the Equal Rights Amendment. And based on my readings, I mean, you were you really actively advocated for that Equal Rights Amendment. Actually, I just the other night saw a documentary and there was just a brief sound clip of you, but I want to read you back your words because you said from the stage, you said, the message from Houston to the women of our country must be short and simple. When you think of the Equal Rights Amendment, think about yourself. Equal legal protection, equal legal opportunities, are the basis of our democracy and of our quality of life. These rights are long overdue. Hey, that's a pretty good statement. <laughs> I thought so. I know in your travels, and you've talked about them, you know, some of the things you witnessed mm -hmm. that put women at a disadvantage in those days. Can you remember any of those sort of things that just struck you? As well, Women couldn't get loans, women couldn't get insurance, women, only in certain professions. When I graduated from college, I could be a secretary, a nurse, a librarian, or something like that. There just were not the opportunities there for women. That my daughters-in-laws were open somewhat to them. It was still limited a little bit. But um, for instance, when we are trying to get qualified women for positions in the government, the hardest was, I think, something like 40 new judicial areas were set up. And Jimmy had to appoint, women had to appoint uh, the judges. It had been such a short time that any women had been to law school, or were allowed to go to law school, that that was the hardest one to be qualified. They had had to have a certain length of time of uh, education, and they were not qualified. But it was that way with other, other things, too. Women just did not and still do not have all of the uh, opportunities that men have. And it sounds like you were so passionate about the Equal Rights Amendment that at the time, I guess, 35 states had ratified it. You needed three more. That's right. And you were trying to get those three. I worked so hard. I worked so hard on that. And it, it was just those few states I think there were only four that we never did get to ratify. And it's still not, it never passed. We still, women don't have some of the rights that, that we need. But if North Carolina had two, Florida had two, and Nevada had nine people that we could never persuade. I, I called them, I went to see them, Jimmy called them. We sent other people to see them. We tried every argument we knew, and we never could get. Because we were talking not just to them at that time, but at the end, we were talking to we'd go to a state and speak about the Equal Rights Amendment with a group of women that were working on it and working that state. And then at the end, everybody started working on it. We never could get it done. After the conference, the recommendations were presented to the president. And uh, 
one of the recommendations was to get a three-year extension. The time to get it passed had run out. I was running out. And so we did come back and, and we did get a three-year extension. I worked all that time. We never, we never got it passed. That was one of the greatest disappointments of mine from the White House. What arguments did you muster and the reaction from some of the male legislators who opposed it? Do you, re do you have recollections of those conversations? Of course. Women's places in the home. <laughs> they did they, they actually? Still don't, they, some men still don't want women representatives in the U.S. Congress. Were male legislators actually that explicit Absolutely. to you? Give me an example of an exchange that you would have. I talked to a lot of men who, and particularly these ones that um, never came around, because they thought that, you know, who would take care of the children if the wives were not to work? Uh, we have to have children. We have to, I go home for lunch um, to eat, and what would I do? I mean, just simple. Looking back at it, when you were not involved in it, you can't understand the situation. The only thing about Plains was there were women working in the grocery stores. They were helping their husbands. I worked in our office in Plains, keeping books. And that was happening already. And I could use those women as examples sometimes when I was talking about it. At home in Georgia at first, it was useless to even talk about it because it was just not an issue. So bringing you back to your childhood, because I was really riveted by your memoir, mm -hmm and the fact that, and, and I don't want to read too much into your story, but you tell me, because you talked about being the only girl your age in the entire town. That's right. And something else struck me. The role model, the women role models you had, especially the teachers, mm -hmm. and they, they encouraged you to dream big, but I guess there were limits to those dreams. Tell me about that and how that changed over time. How did you get to be able to dream so big? Looking at it that way, I don't know. What I know about growing up in Plains is that we had a population of about 600 people. Our town was one square mile. <laughs> and when I was growing up, I had two brothers younger than, than me. And their friends on my street were boys. And we would play kick the can, we, we would play, we'd set up a store and sell things with paper money. We would, it's just a natural growing up, ride our bikes together and so forth. But in Plains, everybody knew everybody. And this was the day before the days of penicillin and antibiotics. If anybody in town got sick, everybody knew it and everybody would gather in to help. Um, if anybody got in trouble, everybody wanted to help them out of trouble. I remember getting up one morning and hearing that some man had come home drunk in the night and, they, and his wife found him the next morning on the doorsteps. And, and um, everybody wanted to help her. And life evolved around the church and the schools. And the ministers wanted to help this man. Everybody wanted to help him. But it was just that feeling that people cared about you. My father died when I was 13. I had a little sister, four, and two brothers in between. I remember the whole town just helped us with anything we needed, or anything my mother needed. And it was just the way it was. People cared about each other and wanted to help them out. So that's my background. And then when I started school, my teachers were 
Our seventh grade teacher was the first one that opened my eyes to the world. We felt safe and isolated in Plains, Georgia. But she, it was, this was in the early 40s. I graduated in 1944 from high school. And the war had started. War. I think we even, she even had us looking at it when there was a possibility that it might go to war. But we had to bring a news clip from the paper every day. This first time I started really thinking about the newspaper. And we didn't have television or anything. And um, I had radio. I used to, we had earphones. I used to watch my father listening to it in front of the radio. But uh, I never was involved. I never listened to the radio. It was a newspaper. And so I started learning about the outside world. And she was one that I think began to open my eyes to what was happening and things that were going on outside of Plains, Georgia. And I know I used to read books about I liked books about people who lived in countries where there was snow and ice and that kind of things because it was we were living in the deep south. And, and so I think I started thinking about the outside world and what might be possible. Uh, not that I ever thought I would be a world traveler <laughs> or anything like that. And also our school superintendent, who is another one that I looked up to, actually Plains school was the best one in our whole area. And we were in competition with our county seat um, schools all the time in sports and in reading and what I place and things like that. She, and Jimmy quoted her in his inaugural address, she had us memorize or learn to, to um, identify classical music. We would listen to it and listen to it. She'd put a little record, a big, little big back then, on the player, and we had to tell her who wrote it and, and the name of the selection. She did the same thing with famous paintings. We had to learn 12 famous paintings. Little Blue Boy by Gainsborough is the one that comes back. And we had, we, the eighth grade always did a one-act play. We had debating teams that could beat anybody around us. So our school was really special, and um, we won prizes in the state all the time. In terms of And this, so those two women, I think, had a big effect on me. Uh, do you remember their names? Yeah, Miss Judy was the school superintendent, and Miss um, MacArthur was the seventh grade teacher, Thelma MacArthur. So if you don't mind, if we can fast forward now that we've gotten that lay of the land of your childhood, and again, moving ahead to the presidency, and I know there was a long road, but uh, you wrote that you and Jimmy grew together as full partners, and that you were more a political partner than a political wife. Can you elaborate on that and tell us what you meant by that? Well, I've done things in my life I never thought I would do because Jimmy thought I could do them. <laughs> he was in the Navy when we first got married and um, gone from Monday to Thursday every week and had one night duty on the ship when he was in. Had a baby, had to take care of everything. For two years, he, that was his duty. You couldn't go from into being a naval pilot or submarine force for two years, and you had to serve another thing. And so I began to gain a lot of independence. We came home from the Navy, and um, when Jimmy's father died to take over the family business, which was a farm supply business, and um, Jimmy was his only employee. Sometimes he had hired one other. 
um, except during the planting season and the harvest season. One day he wanted to go out and call on some of the farmers, go out and visit them, so he asked me to come to keep the office. So I went down and I became regular and then I, he said, asked me if I would keep the books because he was doing the books too. And so I got a, a friend, was an, a professor at the vocational technical school and she gave me a book on, on what I should know to be able to keep the book. And uh, I became so familiar with the work of the office that I got, instead of doing what I would normally do, I got to where I knew more about the business than he did on paper. And I could say, we need to stop shelling corn because we're not making any money on it. These kinds of things, because I could give him some advice. And um, we just began to be partners instead of just a homemaker or a business. have a business relationship. We got to be partners when he decided to run for governor, I campaigned, and I felt like I had, I did my things when he was governor, but I felt like he always wanted to know my position. He didn't always do what I thought he ought to do, (laughs) but pretty much, at least I could have my say on most any subject. And the same thing happened with campaigning for president. It was a partnership, we did it together. I don't think he could have won without, without me and our family who were out there campaigning too. And so when he was president, our family all campaigned. Amy was three years old, no, she was nine, I think. And of course, she, she, did, she stayed with my mother or Jimmy's mother. But Jimmy's mother was out campaigning and her sister. And we learned the answers, the stand on every issue. And so we could all be saying the same thing. And so then when he was elected president, I knew the issues. I started going to cabinet meetings after the first year uh, because he used to say to me, every day I got to step off of the elevator in the upstairs, you say, why did you do this? <laughs> I had asked him something that day. And he said, why don't you come to cabinet meetings and then you'll know why I do them. Because see, I, I knew the issues and I was going out and I was being asked questions. I didn't need to know why he did them. And that's how that happened. And so, and I felt, and in the afternoons, um, after he was through at the Oval Office and I was through, we used to sit on the Truman balcony and um, talk about, I would tell him what I'd done in the day and he would tell me what he had done. And we'd talk about, and when I started going to the cabinet meetings, we talked about, well, we would do that before, but especially after that, because I never spoke of it at the cabinet meeting, I just listened. But then we'd talk about it on the Truman Balcony. <laughs> and so I felt like a partner with him. I didn't feel like just a, a politician's wife. And then you really had a portfolio, which it sounds like you created because of your passion for a number of issues, especially mental health. And tell me about, I mean, you, you really worked hard and succeeded at getting mental health legislation passed. Tell us how that happened and also whether being a woman was in some way a hindrance or a help in that battle. Well, I became interested in mental health campaigning for Jimmy uh, in Georgia. Um, It was a time when the community mental health centers had been passed, and although I knew nothing about the issue, as I campaigned every day, somebody would ask me what my husband would do for a mental ill family member if he were elected governor. What I learned was 
that um, they were beginning to turn people out of hours. There'd been a big expose of our Central State Hospital in Georgia. And they were turning people out before the community mental health centers were established. And they had no, some of them had been in, in the institution for most of the, all of their lives, 20 or 30 or even 40 years. And to go home, <laughs> people didn't have any idea what was going on. But we knew, we did not understand mental illnesses back then, what caused them, uh, whether there was, and there was nobody knew how to treat them. And I, I really became a concern. And so I started and had a, a mental health program. It was a good program. We established 134 community mental health centers. They were not everything. They were not comprehensive. But some of them were just a spot on a main street, an obvious place in a town where people could go to get information about where to go to help, for help. But we did have a good program. But the stigma was so bad then that people didn't want to come to see me. My mental health had five advocates in the state of Georgia. <laughs> that was it. And nobody wanted to be on my, even when Jim was governor, nobody wanted to be on my committee because they didn't want to be identified with the issue. Well, you can see how I wanted to get something done about that. And so I became really interested in that. I became interested in the women's issue because of my daughters and all. I've worked on immunization as long as I have mental health, starting in Georgia. So I had those things that were important to me. But that was the way I became interested in mental health issues. And I did have a task force. And, um, and then I had a, at the White House, I was able to get the legislation passed. Stigma is still pervasive. I have a really, really good program here at the Carter Center. And um, it is still the number one issue that is, has been my total life. Seems like all of my life I've worked on trying to get better help for people with mental illness. And there's some good things happening now, but can you cut right back because I'm getting off my subject. No, not at all. In fact, in your success getting mental health legislation passed, uh, you really had to do a lot of lobbying. And not only that, I read that you fought for a budget and you got a budget in a time of austerity. Did being a woman in any way and getting really into the legislation and, the, and, and persuading others, did that have any impact? I hope so. But um, we had um, a man in Georgia who had been head of the drug program when Jim was governor. And he was, he was a psychiatrist. And he worked with me on mental health in Georgia. And then he went to the White House with us. But before Jim was inaugurated, I had learned some people who were really interested in, in uh, working on mental health issues from the other parts of the country. We started working on a committee for the President's Commission on Mental Health on who would be on it before Jimmy was inaugurated. And Peter knew some people in on the national scene. And we started gathering people together and, and just talking about what we could do. I traveled all over the country listening to people talk about their problems. And, and I think people were kind of hungry for what to do or where to go back then. And we got people started in the different states talking about it. But because back then, 
all I thought I could do was talk about the issue and bring it out into the open. And I think that um, I was a little bit successful at that. And we developed a really good um, commission. The members were all good. But we worked hard. And we got, but we did, were able to get people in states who had passion for the issue to work with our legislators and all. I testified before Congress on this issue. And I testified on aging too. Uh, and I think I was the first First Lady since Eleanor Roosevelt to testify before Congress, which made me feel good <laughs> that I was able to do that. But I knew the issue, I knew the answers, I knew what we wanted to do. And so I think that was the reason. And the Mental Health Systems Act of 1980 passed. It was one of my greatest triumphs. And then the next president put it on a shelf and never implemented it. That was one of the greatest disappointments of my life. And do you know that in my President's Commission report, we had parity for insurance, integration of services, incentives for people to go into the mental health field, all of these things that we're just getting with Affordable Care Act. So you could see how I could not stop working on that issue because it was, and it took 30-something years to get parity and insurance. Um, we just began. I think my integration was substance use and mental health. I always thought we should bring those two together. And that's happened under the Affordable Care Act. But now in the mental health field, when we talk about integration, it's that, but it's also combining mental health and primary care. Because mental health affects so many people with other diseases and illnesses. And um, primary care doctors don't know how to work with it. So the integration now has brought mental health and we started working on that on the Coral Center on bringing together mental health and substance use issues at the Coral Center before the Affordable Care Act had anything to do with it. Well, and if, if we could sort of, and by the way, before we finish, I want Meryl Amos from the Women's Hall of Fame to just, I'm sure I've missed something great, and she's listening in, so, so I, I am going to go to her before we finish, but I, I, could you bring us up to speed on your work at the Carter Center? And really what strikes me is you sound as passionate today <laughs> as you were about the issues back then, and I, and I know I've read that the Carter Center is pivoting in some ways uh, uh, towards a real women's rights agenda globally. What, what are you doing along those lines right now? There are so many things that need to be done uh, in the women's movement still. Equal pay for equal work, those kinds of things. And still, though, if you look at the Fortune 500, they only have women CEOs of their underestimated for how many women they are. I mean, they should be there. At the Carter Center, we became really interested in women's issues from a human rights perspective. We have here every year a Human Rights Defenders Conference, and we bring people in from all over the world who are working in their own countries to try to get even democracy, you know, even education for their children and health care and those kinds of things. And so for the last few years, we've been we, we had one conference and it was so, I mean, it, it hurt you so bad to see how women suffered in parts of the world, other parts of the world. And also in our country, we got so upset, I think it was two years ago, 
trying to decide what we could do. And these are about issues like um, slavery. And as I said, it, that issue is local because there are more people sold into slavery through Atlanta than anywhere else in the, in the southeast, I think it's in the country. And, um, and when you give reasons for it, you can see why it bothers you. The reason Atlanta is a hub is because of our airport. And so many women come in from Latin America where they have dark skin. A dark-skinned woman can be sold for $1,000 to A lighter skin goes for much, much more. And so we don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that. And so we got so upset. We would talk about it after the conference. And then um, I think it was the second one when talking about what we could do. Jimmy said, I'm going to write a book about it before, and I'll finish it before December. <laughs> And, oh my goodness. And uh, he did finish the book. And now we're talk talking about closing down the places for prostitutions, universities having to open up about what's actually happening on the campuses as far as rape is concerned in the past and in the military too. They've talked to uh, the man, usually, and the woman, but getting them to just keep it quiet and, and not do it, the man not to do it again. But now um, it's becoming more and more you're reading about how that they are opening up on these things that are happening in the university campuses, some of them. And I think a law was passed that uh, might have been passed in, before about universities having to report rapes and things like that on their campuses. I mean, it's just been, the time was ripe to bring that issue up because so many people that knew about it and just hadn't spoken out about it. To sort of put it in perspective, what advice would you give, given your life experience and the scope of what you've learned, what would you tell young girls today? And what would you tell young boys? And is the advice any different? I think I would tell both of them to do the best they can do in whatever they undertake, in school, in sports, in business later in life, because they never know what the future holds for. I never dreamed I would be first lady. I'm sure I would have done more to try to prepare, but be prepared for the future. And the other thing that I want to tell them is, do what you can to help other people, and you'll have a good life, because I've had a good life. Meryl, is there anything that, uh, that you want to add or that we've missed? I have two questions for you. Um, the first, and, and this is, that was a perfect segue actually. Um, so we get a lot of young girls coming into the National Women's Hall of Fame, a lot of Girl Scouts, and a lot of girls that were, they're around seven years old. And so thinking back when you were that age, what did you want to be when you grew up? What did you see yourself doing? That's an interesting question because I didn't know what I wanted to be very early. I used to draw pictures. After my father died, my mother took in sewing, but she made all of our clothes when I was little. And I would draw pictures of things I wanted to, dresses I wanted her to make, and she'd make them for me. And then I thought, maybe I could be a, when I got a little older, 12 years old or something, maybe I could be a designer. I didn't want to be a seamstress because I hadn't sewed at home. And actually, we did trousseaus for brides and things like that. Mother taught me how. I got pretty good at sewing. And, uh, 
And then I thought, but I'm a woman and I won't be able to do that. But I drew pictures of buildings and things and I thought maybe I would become an architect. <laughs> That's kind of, looking back on it, I think maybe Miss Montgomery, my seventh grade teacher, had some influence on making me think that I could be an architect. But this was even before, well, I was thinking that I didn't want to be a school teacher. When my daddy died, I had these three siblings that it was I had to take care of, do a lot of that for my mother. And I didn't want to be a school teacher. But I, I think that it's so good when young people dream about what they can do when they grow up. And I want them to know that they can do anything. And that's the reason they need to be prepared. And then finally, on the topic of advice, and I was just wondering if there's any advice that you have specifically for women now in achieving the rights that we're entitled to, and if you have any advice in moving forward for what, what women should be trying to do. I wish we could get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. I think that would do a lot to let people realize, maybe men, <laughs> that we are as qualified as, as they are in most anything there is to do. And uh, I think that would maybe kind of call it to attention. I actually have a woman here in Atlanta who wants to get that started, but I haven't, I don't know whether I can take on another issue now. <laughs> but um, as far as young women, I know this must have been 15 years ago at least, maybe, maybe longer than that. I made a speech about the fact that now women, young women have what they want. I mean, they can do what they want to do. They don't have restrictions on that. And we have worked, so we were, when Jim was president, since we came home, I've worked with people who try to get young women involved with the issue. And it's been really difficult. I don't know, but uh, I do think maybe Equal Rights Men might bring to the attention of young people that they don't have the rights that men have and that the Constitution doesn't grant them rights. And maybe that would get them excited about the issue. Yeah, I think a lot of people just don't know. I think they don't know. That they don't know how hard, we, how hard we work. Yeah. <laughs> but it's good because they have the rights they have now. Go to school and learn to be an attorney, a doctor, whatever you want to be. Last question. Have you noticed in your interactions with men these days, have you seen a change in how they respond to to women's issues and, and to women in their interactions with you? Have men gotten better? <laughs> well, young men now, today, the life is totally different today. When we were in the Navy and I had our three boys, our three boys, the first time, when the first one came, my mother, my grandfather I was, we thought on his deathbed. Jimmy's mother was in the hospital. Jimmy took two weeks off from leave to come home. He bathed the baby, he helped me, we lived it. And then the same thing happened, not the same thing, but we were living in Hawaii. And so my mother and Jimmy's mother weren't close. So he took, he took off, had leave again. But that was really unpopular back then. I mean, when we went home and I told people Jimmy took care of the baby, they didn't believe it. 
But when Jimmy, when we were living in Hawaii, our bedrooms were upstairs, and back then, they didn't want me to walk downstairs for two weeks. Did Jimmy take the baby down and give him his bath, feed him, bring him back up? Very nice. Is that the first parental leave story we've ever heard of in the mid-20th century? <laughs> but now they do it all the time, and they help with the feeding and uh, get him to bed. Well, just take turns a lot of times with wives and doing things and change diapers and stuff that men back when I was growing up would not ever do. <laughs> well, things, things are slowly changing, and That's I think that you are a huge part of, of being someone in the public eye who really helped perpetuate the idea that, that women are very credible people and that women deserve to, to well, I'm not only I, yeah. but there are other women advocates that have really, really worked hard. And when Jimmy was president, I got really upset with the women in the women's movement because, and, and this is why I let my daughter-in-law take care of this, I would go with them to see Jimmy, and we would give him this list of what we wanted him to do. And um, then he would give them 95% out, they'd walk and call a press conference and just blast him. It made me so mad. I just got upset with him. I said, Judy, you, you fool with him. <laughs> and I still was friends with him. I would meet with him, but I wouldn't go to all the meetings. But they were fervent, and that's why we got where we are. Mrs. Carter, thank you so much for joining us for this oral history project of the National Women's Hall of Fame. We greatly appreciate your time. Enjoy. Thank you so much. If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.